And I mean that sincerely. If you haven't silenced your phone. If you own an Android, you should look up the application called Shush. S-H-U-S-H. And uh, when you install it, when you turn your ringer off, you can just tell it to reactivate all of your settings to the same level in 10 minutes, half hour, an hour. So like if you shut it off tonight, it won't be Saturday when you realize that your phone is still on silent. I know none of you do that. Shut my phone off on Sunday and literally it's Tuesday afternoon and I'm thinking, wow, it's been really peaceful. And there's a whole bunch of people out there that hate me. So we are studying the book of Isaiah. And it is a very potent book in the Bible. So let's pray and then we will begin. Father, we thank you very much for your love, your graciousness, your word, your spirit. As we come here this evening, we pray that you would minister to us, that we would be led by the power of your Holy Spirit to know and understand the things that you want us to guide us as your children. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, John, you come grab this. Give that to the sound desk. Thank you. That's your cues. Was with my notes. Um, so we hear people say, like, you know, the Bible was written by men, not by God. And then, you know, you hear things like, well, you know, the Bible's changed so much over time. Men have copied it and done things to it. And to start with, the book of Isaiah, the Lord specifically says to Israel and Judah, you know, go to the other gods and see if they can tell you anything about the future. 
he, he hangs his credentials and the credentials for the word of God on prophecy and history, actually. See if they can tell us anything about the future. See if they can tell us anything about the past. And I like the way that the world mocks the Bible and its record of history, and then the more that is studied and uncovered through archaeology, the more it continuously confirms the Word of God endlessly. The Word of God has never been disproven by any of the things that have been quote-unquote discovered. Never. Its accuracy has been upheld perfectly. The Bible has never changed over time. Men's interpretation of the Bible, don't get me wrong. Today you live in this culture and this pastor says one thing and that denomination says another. Interpretation of the Bible has changed. I like to think we stay right on the old interpretation. We aren't moving off from the things that the Scripture says are wrong are wrong. The things that the Scripture says are right are right. The things that the Scripture says have taken past in the past, we believe. The things that the Scripture says are going to take place in the future, we believe. The changes that have occurred in opinion regard mostly those things. You know, the pastors don't believe what the Bible says about the past. The pastors don't believe denominations, congregations don't believe what the Word of God says about the future or even the present. The changes haven't been with the Word of God. The changes have been with the opinions of men. And opinions always change, don't they? When you were younger, you were not supposed to eat butter. It was horrible. It was terrible for you, right? You were only supposed to eat margarine or some other butter substance. And now we've come to discover what? Butter's horrible. I mean, margarine's horrible, and you should only eat butter. It was eggs that you shouldn't eat. No, now you need to eat eggs, right? Constantly, the opinions are changing. And we're left to decipher what's truth, what's false. The Word of God claims to be perfect. Particularly, the book of Isaiah has things to declare to us that outweigh a lot of the other circumstances we see in the Bible. The prophecies of this man are put forward in such a way that they're undeniable. You know, if Isaiah is wrong, you know, if, for instance, if the virgin is not going to give birth, as he says, then we shouldn't listen to the word of God. If the things this man put forward aren't actually God-breathed, then we should abandon the whole book. This is one of 66 books. And if this is not accurate, then chuck the whole thing out because it makes the great claim of being God's word. So, as we dive into this as a way of introduction, Isaiah was prophesying between 740 and 680 B.C. So, you've got to think about that B.C. and light of the countdown, you know, the further away from Jesus you go in history into the past, the higher the number gets. So we're going from 740 downward, counting down towards Jesus and the cross, 740 to 680 BC. He's an unusual prophet because he speaks to both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. A lot of the times 
you know, it, some of them did speak to both, but a lot of the times what you had was a prophet that was strictly sent by the Lord to speak to the northern kingdom or strictly sent by the Lord to speak to the southern kingdom, right? You, you got, you know, 900 years, uh, you know, that uh, Israel has been in existence and at, you know, this stage it's had, you know, hundreds of years where it was the... Uh, Judges that the Lord raised up, you know, you got Gideon that came and Deborah that came, and you know, uh, you know, uh, the the men and women that uh, delivered Israel from their sin acted as national leaders under God's divine guidance. They were raised up, had no king. Now they've had three kings, right? You had uh, first King Saul; they all wanted, and he was a tyrant, and you know, God removed him, and then you had David, and then his son Solomon, and at the end of Solomon's reign, civil war. And the nation divides. And you have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and you have, you know, what? The teens, I think it was like 18 kings in the north that uh, transpire, and you have all the kings in the south and Judah and these two separate kingdoms, and you come to Isaiah here. After Israel's fall in the north to the Assyrians in 722 BC, Isaiah continued to prophesy in the south to Judah. So he's unique that way. And along with that, he was a contemporary while he was doing his ministry. If you've read the books of Hosea and Micah, they were on the scene at the same time as Isaiah. That's significant. You know, take the time for extra credit as we're working through this to go and read Hosea and Micah and see the similarities of what's being said. See how things overlap with these prophets. Hear the similarities in messages that are coming from the Lord uh, to the nations of Israel and Judah during that same period of time. It's quite remarkable. By the time Isaiah shows up, the prophet Elijah, Elisha, Obadiah, Joel, Jonah, Amos had already completed their ministries. So God has been warning the nation and speaking to them very clearly for some time. You know, the prophets don't just show up like pastors because the priests were on the scene. The prophets show up mostly to just blast the bark off of people. Not going to listen to the Lord, he sends a prophet. And, you know, sometimes that prophet is as harsh as Elijah. Other times he's as soft as Jeremiah, who just weeps over the nation and their destruction that is to come. But it is the sort of thing that tears at your heart to hear their message and understand the rebellion of the nation and what's going on. The New Testament quotes Isaiah by name more than all the other writing prophets combined. That's interesting. Isaiah is quoted more than all of the other prophets put together. He's very significant as far as especially doctrine goes, understanding God's character, understanding you know, Israel, understanding Judah, understanding our own conduct as human beings. He's, he's essential to understanding the Bible. Isaiah is significant in that way. Now, if you've studied Isaiah at all, or if this sparks your interest 
and you're like, I got to dig into this more, you're inevitably going to find that there are many different opinions about how many Isaiahs there were. There are lots of different thoughts that there were multiple men who were named Isaiah or used Isaiah as a pseudonym and wrote as though they were Isaiah. Those are all false. Okay, There was one Isaiah. The reason that that comes up is the, the stark difference in different sections of this book of Isaiah. You have very strong condemnation. Then, you know, these profound statements of what the future is going to look like. Then these very mournful, loving chapters that come later. So you have opinions like there's, you know, one in the beginning and then one at the end. Then there's like, no, you got the one in the beginning, the one in the middle. Then there's, you know, the Isaiah at the end. They're all the same prophet. How do I know that? Jesus said they were the same prophet. We don't have to sit around and debate it. And we actually have John, if we could put that up. You might want to turn with me before we begin. Chapter 12, beginning at verse 37, here to verse 41, John quotes from all of the book Isaiah and refers to them as all one prophet. So, I mean, who would have known better then the apostle whom Jesus loved, who was discipled by Jesus directly, as he says in John chapter 12, beginning at verse 37, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe him, that the word of Isaiah, singular one, the singular one prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Not the Isaiahs or the books of Isaiahs. He refers to him as one prophet. It's always those that think they know more about everybody else that distort the truth of God's word. God's word plainly states, Jesus plainly, plainly stated, John says here, it's all one prophet. You say, well, who cares? One or three or two? Does it make a difference? It makes a big difference. Because there are those that want to say the second prophet was not legitimate. So we should only listen to the first and third. Or, you know, the, the first prophet only applied uh, to Israel. The second prophet only applies to the New Testament believers. It all applies to us. There's one prophet and his message is to anyone who would hear it throughout history. The minute you start to try and dismantle it, you're distorting the truth of God's word. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37 says, Of the prophets, they were stoned. They were sawn in two by Manasseh, is the thought. Uh, were tempted, were slain with swords. They wandered about in sheepskin and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. Uh, the sawn in two 
was most likely Isaiah. We can't confirm that, but church history has held that for basically all of its recorded history. That Isaiah, in fleeing from King Manasseh, actually hid in a hollow tree, and when they found him, they bound him into the tree, and then Manasseh ordered that the tree be sawn in half so that it killed the prophet inside it. So, uh, you know, whether that was him or not, it's speaking of the prophets and how they were treated, and um, that's church history. The name Isaiah means salvation is of the Lord. So when you look at this man and his message, the root of that is that the Lord is the source of salvation, no one else. The, the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah are going to look to all of the nations surrounding them for sources of salvation. And the, the prophet's name in itself is that the Lord alone is the source of salvation. It's actually one of those things that his name is more impactful to their hearts than anything else that have come could have come to them at that time because Assyria, when it finally falls, falls because there have been these wars going on between the three mightiest nations that surround them for you know hundreds of years now. Egypt with Assyria and Babylon and everybody's just sort of warring across Israel. And Israel ends up getting sort of engulfed in the fire of those conflicts along the way. And, and the end result for Assyria is the cat or for Israel in the north is the capture by Assyria. Now, so while Assyria is a threat, they're looking to Egypt to be their help. While Egypt becomes a threat, they're looking to Babylon to be their help. They're never looking to the Lord. And Isaiah shows up on the scene. His very name is the Lord alone is our source of salvation. Uh, we know more about Isaiah than we do many of the other prophets. Isaiah was married, was the father of at least two sons, and he lived in Jerusalem. If you need all of those references, I can give those to you at another time. The prophecy of this chapter, one, probably took place in the time of Ahaz, king of Judah. You can find that in 2 Kings chapter 16 and 2 Chronicles chapter 28. So with all of that introduction, if your mind's not too numb at this point, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. Now, uh, there are those that try to make Amos, his father, related to the king. And so that, in their mind, puts some kind of greater weight behind Isaiah being the prophet. It's really difficult uh, to even imagine that is the case. There's some similarities in the names, but there's no reason to think that that is the case. It's actually the contrary. Uh, it's, it's more believable that he's a nobody to the king, and he shows up, and his message is uh, very pointed as he begins to deliver uh, this scathing rebuke to the nation and the leadership of the nations. So the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So these are the kings that his 
vision spanned over their reign, is what he's describing. And there's some thought that it extended into Manasseh, but that ended up being where he died. So it's not recorded here. So this is his prophecy during you know, um, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Now, many have pointed out that the Lord and Isaiah at this point are turning their attention to inanimate objects to be witnesses to what they're saying. Um, it's been likened to, you know, perhaps you've found yourself in a place where you're talking to people and then you look up and no one's paying any attention to you. So you just like start talking to the glass in your hand or turn to the wall and finish what you're saying because no one's in the room listening to you, even though you're saying things to people that are present. You know, it's, it's the sort of thing that God has in all the other cases of the prophets said, Hear, O people, thus saith the Lord, and here comes the message. Now it's at the point where Isaiah is saying, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. And now the prophecy is going to follow because Israel is not listening. For, for all of the attention that he's going to describe here, right? There's, there's great reform going on. There's, there's great reform. Reform to take something that was formed that has no longer any form and to reform it is literally the idea, right? This, this is what, you know, man-made reform is. You know, we have an idea of what a man or a woman should be in conduct or person, and they've departed from that dramatically, and now we want to get them back to what we believe to be acceptable, and everybody agrees is somehow moral, so we're going to reform the person back to what will be acceptable to society or to that person even, uh, you know, God doesn't do that at all in the scripture. He talks about rebirth. He talks about repentance to turn your thinking around and go the opposite direction. He doesn't talk about reform. There's reform going on, but it's just form. They're going, they're going to church. They're, they're, they're giving sacrifices and simultaneously living in gross sin. I look around the world and see a very similar thing going on today. People in churches, people, you know, walk in the walk, you know, or I should say talk in the talk, but not walking the walk. They've, they've reformed, but they haven't actually repented. And they haven't been reborn in the process. Now, this is a thing the church has dealt with historically over and over and over again, you know, you look around and see, you know, Amish, Mennonites, Puritans. There was a time where the church had this baptism that everybody was 
participating in. If you were going to be part of the church, they would have a ceremony, bring you up front, and they would pour water over your head or maybe even immerse you. But it was just, okay, now you're a member and everybody applauds and you're part of the church and go off and do whatever it was you were doing before. Well, uh, the Holy Spirit began to move on the hearts of certain people and they were saying, this is no good. You know, all of this baptism that is going on by the priests and by the pastors, no one's actually changing. They're they're signing the card, they're getting, you know, the certificate of baptism, but, but there's no sincere change. And so the Anabaptist movement began, which is to be baptized again. Anna Baptist. And the uh, you know first waves of that were the Puritans. You, know, you can you find the roots inside the Amish in the Anabaptists. You know, and quickly that became a form of legalism. And you know, what are we finding? There's as much and people admire, you know, the uh, you know Amish and say, oh, they're just such honest people. Really? You ought to talk to people who buy horses from them. You know, <laughs> they just omitting information is lying. You know what I'm saying? If you don't tell people the problems that are present, that's lying. You know, they, they are as dishonest as anyone else. You know, they do things as sinfully as anyone else. You know, they won't use rubber because it was invented by the United States military. So they drive around on steel wheels. Can you imagine being in that cart with your family on pavement with steel wheels? You'd rattle the fillings right out of your head. Look underneath the cart. What you find? I'm not making this up. You know, air cushion, air ride suspension systems underneath it that are rubber. You know, take a trip to Pennsylvania. Check out how they live. You know, whitewashed tombed on the front end. You know, so Rum Springer. Ask him about that. You know, where the teens don't know whether they want to be part of the community anymore. So they go off to live in the world however they want to. And they can come back whenever they're finished with it. That's what Rum Springer is. They literally go get drunk, sleep around, do drugs. Until the elders in the community finally say, look. You need to now decide. You've had all of this wild living. Are you going to be part of the Amish or are you going to go the way of the English as they refer to all of us? And they go, okay. And they come home. Why? Because if they don't, then they're going to be excommunicated from the community. They're not going to be allowed to even speak to any of their relatives. The I'm not being rude when I say this, literally, the hundreds of cousins that they have, that they've grown up with all of their lives, everyone they know that they spent every waking moment with since they were born will no longer even greet them. They will be treated as though they are dead. They very often have funerals for them if they don't return. So they go sow their wild oats during Rum Springer, and when the elders of the community finally say, enough, are you going to be Amish or are you going to be English? They go, okay. And 99% of them come home. So is that repentance? Imagine if that's what the Lord was calling us to. Oh, just go have fun as long as you want. It's foolishness. It's What was sincerity has become an outward display. 
you know, over and over again, we see this throughout Christianity, throughout the faith. The reform is just that, just an outward appearance of things. So the prophet, as he comes to them, no one's listening. And now the message comes, for the Lord has spoken. Verse 2, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Anyone who's a parent knows how joyful that is. When your kids start questioning you, like you're the one who's on the witness stand, you know, you got to defend yourself. Why are you doing that? Why am I doing that? So that you can stay alive. You know, what? When did I start answering to you? At what point do I now have to give account to the child that I've kept alive for all these years? When they move into that place, you know, it's interesting. We were listening to a comedian some time ago, and he was talking about, you know, you look at teenagers, and, you know, the Lord was wise enough to give those people to us so that we would know what it was like to create a being who then rebelled against you. You know, when was it that Lucifer rebelled? The comedian said probably around 16, you know, somewhere in there. When you have a child and they've chosen to reject your authority. This is what the Lord is saying to this entire nation. You were nobody. I took one man who probably was a worshiper of the moon and stars. And I made the entire nation of Israel out of him. And you decide I'm not worthy of being worshipped. Without me, you wouldn't even exist. And now you've rebelled against me. They've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Chuck Smith um, makes the point that many years ago now, there was an occasion in Israel where there was actually a burglary that took place in the middle of the night. And as they were doing the investigation on the scene of the things that had been broken, uh, it came up like, where did this donkey come from? And everybody's like, we have no idea. Donkey tied up at the scene. One of the detectives realizes this might actually belong to the man who came here and did this break-in. So he just unties the donkey and gives it a whack on the rear end, and it takes off. And they follow the donkey right to the house where the man was who'd stolen everything. You know, the donkey knows his way home. The ox knows where his master's house is. But Israel doesn't know the Lord. When when the chips are down, they aren't going to the right place. They're not returning to where they belong. A painful thing to not know where you belong. The people do not consider, alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Spurgeon that said, if you're not moving forward, you are backsliding. The more the years pass, the more I realize that. There's a, a sinful thing within us that likes to think, no, 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 no. I'm not backsliding. I'm just 
relaxing. Just taking it easy. I'm just, okay, I'm in the same place I was months ago, years ago, but I'm not backsliding. No, if you're not moving forward, then you are backsliding. If you're not growing and progressing and improving, if the Lord, the Holy Spirit, isn't working in you and you're not further ahead than where you were, that, that is a condemnation because the Lord is moving forward the Lord's progress is occurring. The strength is growing. That means that means He's passed us by. We've stayed in the same place, which is backsliding. The, the bar continues to move upward. The standard continues to be perfection. The minute that we come to the place where we've stagnated, we've already begun to fall backward. The Lord says in verse 5, Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick. The whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot, even to the head. There is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. A sickness. Isn't it strange uh, to listen to people and realize they don't even realize how messed up things are? You know, we just went through this big thing. We're still in the midst of it, but our, our country just went through this big thing. You know, the news exploding with all of this, you know, madness of right against left and, you know, will this judge be confirmed and, you know, did this happen? Did that happen? Who's lying? Who's right? Who's wrong? All this nonsense. Hey, pause for just a moment here. Go back not many years ago. Some of the younger people in this room, and I, I do mean just a little bit younger, don't remember when certain questions were being asked of our president about his relationship with a certain young woman. And things were emerging in the news that, as a culture, we were shocked that this is being discussed on national television, right? Those that are just a little bit older in the room, remember, like, do, do we really discuss this on national television? Does the whole world actually get to hear these comments and these questions and articles of clothing? What in the world is this? Right? We had, we had reached a new low. Now, not many years later, we're discussing things in front of the whole world that are so unspeakable. The accusations that are out the things that are being said and the things that people are being accused of, it, it's like nobody even notices. Like the standard not long ago was so much more pure than it is today. You get, you get to today and the standard of what's being discussed <clears throat> regarding this, the same or similar circumstances, the sexual conversations, about people's conduct, and nobody even notices. 
that it's that much worse. The whole thing. I'm going to die. <coughs> Am I just bright red or purple? I'm not going to die. I'm going to be all right. <coughs> so you have the sole of the foot, <coughs> the head, the whole body. It's all decrepit. It's all disgusting. <coughs> Our whole culture has moved to a place that is so depraved, so sick. You know, I mean, politicians are literally making statements that are calls for violence and aggression against other politicians. That's where our culture has come. <coughs> you know, 40 minutes away, uh, one of our senators is receiving mail that potentially had poison in it. Her husband opened the letter. This is the culture we're in right now. I mean, if you said this 10 years ago, 20 years ago, that this is where we were going to be, people would have laughed at you. You know, if you said this when I was in high school, that this is where we were going to be, I would have mocked you. But now on this end of things, looking back to my high school days, looking back to some of your high school days that are a little older than me, lying the straight edge of morality on it and drawing that clear line of deterioration through the decades Oh, no, this is exactly where we belong. Now, continue that line downward. If that's where we've come from the early 90s and the discussion of that president to 2018 and these circumstances, where are we going to be 20 or 40 years from now? Where are your children and your grandchildren going to be 20 or 40 years from now? The sickness, the putrefying sores of our culture, our country. You know, it's it's the frog in, in the water, right? Put him in while it's cool and then turn the temperature up underneath him and you just cook him to death right there. He doesn't recognize the rising temperature. The culture doesn't recognize as it's being seethed in this process. You know, here's the nation of Israel. They don't recognize this, the deterioration. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence. And it is desolate. It's overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard. Some things that have to be explained. A hut and a garden of cucumbers as a besieged city. The people within this culture <clears throat> in the winter months, which you know our 
generally speaking, like our winter months, they're colder and they're rainy and they, you know, don't produce a lot of, uh, you know, fruit in the way that, you know, the summer months do and the autumn, the harvest. So they move into the cities for the winters and then they move back out into the country for the summers and in the middle of their gardens they have towers or huts where the family would live in it and they plant and grow and tend to their crops because this is their money this is their livelihood so they attend to it very carefully they watch over it they protect it but then the harvest comes and everything's just sort of left barren and waste and they've you know performed the harvest and put the tools away and locked up the shed and closed up the hut and moved back into the city. You know, you walk into the fields during that time and everything's like abandoned, like it's a ghost town. You can tell, well, people used to be here. There's all the evidence that this used to be a fruitful thing. He's saying the whole country has become like that sort of ghost town, right? We, we right here in this area, especially know what that's like, right? I mean, October 15th hits, right? Definitely by November 1st, Bar Harbor is buttoned up. You know what I'm saying? Like the, the town is a ghost town. There's like two places in town to go to. Everything else is shut off, shut down, closed up. You know, it's got sort of a an abandoned feel. <laughs> it's not like... It's strange. You, know, you can tell there was activity. This is how the whole country is. It's It's got that post-apocalyptic feel of there was life here, but it's gone. You know, I, I see you know very similar things happening in our culture right now. No? You don't think so? I mean, when was the last time you were at the mall? Oh, this is no joke, you guys. This is a direct... Result, you know, I mean, drive south, literally drive through some of those massive, huge industrial complexes, you know, no longer manufacturing automobiles, right? You know, most of us in this room remember a time where paper mills were everywhere, where there was massive industry, huge wealth and growth. Whole communities built around those centers of industry. That's where we're at. Why? Foreigners. I'm not anti-foreigner. Don't get me wrong. This is the natural result of abandoning the God you're supposed to worship. We, we, as a nation, were built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. The same foundation, the same God that this country, Israel, was built upon. And this nation has abandoned him. Right now, people are applauding, oh, the politics, oh, the wonderful things that are happening, oh, the great changes that are taking place. You see him people on their face before God? I'm not seeing many. I'm seeing people bow down before the almighty dollar as they always have. Oh, the, the prosperity's slipping away. The money's flying out the window. 
Whatever are we going to do? It's going to get so bad that you're going to regret ever having loved money that way. It, it is going to get so bad. People are going to regret it. The only hope is to fall on our face before God. That's it. That's it. You know, the people that are making money for themselves and running off and enjoying that are going to regret all of that. Knowing later, I should have invested in my relationship with the Lord. Why? Because my kids watch me invest in wealth. And now look at my kids. This is where we're at. Currently, presently, the ones who are without regret are the ones who are like Isaiah, whose face is set on the Lord, who are worshiping him. The whole destruction, the putrefying sores, your country's desolate, your cities burned with fire, strangers devour your land in your presence. It is desolate, as overthrown by strangers, so the daughters of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city, unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant. We would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. The remnant. The remnant of worshipers. Listen. It isn't the remnant of economists, the remnant of politicians that are going to save us. It is the remnant of believers that when everything has turned to ash around us, we're going to stand in the same place we ever did. We're going to worship in the same way we ever did. And we're going to continue to declare to anyone who will listen to us, turn your face toward the Lord. And those that will, will be restored. Now this is happening. You can see the parallel passage in 2 Chronicles 28, 19. It says, for the Lord brought Judah low. Because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had become continually unfaithful to the Lord. Now, later in Second Chronicles chapter 28, verse 22, it says, Now in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. This is that King Ahaz that continued deterioration of worship and faith and morality. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> the Reverend Al Sharpton. The Reverend Jesse Jackson. Ridiculous. Ridiculous that they even bear those titles. You know... Look back in history. Do a little research. You know, both of those men were jailed in the 60s for inciting riots. 
They are not the examples to follow. They are not, you know, you got a president who's saying, well, whose interpretation of the Bible do we listen to? You know, Dr. James Dobson's or Dr. You know, Al Sharpton. Is that a legitimate question? You know, you're asking me whether I should listen to a man of God like James Dobson or Mickey Mouse? I mean, this guy isn't even for real. Reverend Al Sharpton. And the world, you say something that to, you know, to the world, Sharpton's a fake. You say to the world, that man is not a minister of God. And oh, they rile right up. How dare you? How dare I? It's very easy. Look at the fruit of those two men's lives. Look at James Dobson fight all of his life to protect and preserve the family. As Sharpton has dismantled God's word and thereby dismantled our culture and our country. He has created civil unrest. He's done nothing to bind up and heal. It's a tragic thing that our culture does not understand. There are certain people that need to be named. You know, Ahaz needs to be named so that they understand why there is a deterioration. Why is there a deterioration? Because there are certain people who lead us in the wrong directions as a nation. Follow. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah are long gone at this point, destroyed hundreds of years previously. But they are the billboards for God's judgment, right? If there was a billboard and it said Sodom, it would have an equal sign and it would say judgment underneath it. Gomorrah equals judgment. God's judgment. God's wrath. You say Sodom and Gomorrah and the people go, man, God's wrath. Destroyed. Rain fire down from heaven. Yep, that was some bad business. God just called Israel and Judah Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what he just did. Listen to me, you rulers of Sodom, you people of Gomorrah. God's going to bring down his judgment. To what purpose is a multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Literally, you don't worship me with your heart. What are you doing here? Why are you in my temple, is what he's saying. Why are you in my church, he might say to us. Your heart is not aligned with me at all. You go do whatever you want to do, and then you come in here. See, how many times have you heard me say, I agree with Joseph Stalin. 
when he said religion is the opiate of the masses. Don't misunderstand me. I understand Joseph Stalin to be the murderous communist wretch that he was. But when he said religion is the opiate of the masses, what he was saying is people go live however they want to. And then they come to church with a, the pains, all the, the racked heart of a guilty conscience, and they give themselves an injection of religion each week, and they go, oh, there, I feel so much better. Religion is the opiate of the masses. They get their big fix and walk away feeling so much better about themselves as they go right back out the door and live however they want to. If that's religion for us, then we are using it in that same way. God is saying, what have I got to do with you? Who told you to do this? When you come into my courts, you trample my courts. Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity in the, in the sacred meeting. I can't, those two things can't work together. He doesn't hate incense. He doesn't hate the sacrifice. He doesn't hate the celebrations and the religious days and, and you know the holy celebrations. He doesn't hate them. He can't endure the iniquity and that together. These two things mixed together. They, they can't work. My wife, you know, we got on this kick, going to juice everything, you know. It's going to, like, health, just going to juice everything. Well, she finds all these recipes. And, uh, man, you know, at first, at first, you're like, this is super healthy. This is good. I will do this. I'm down. Well, you know, by like the third day, just to smell cucumber being juiced. You know, bananas are great, and I really like strawberries and blueberries, but when you put that much cucumber with it, it's an abomination. Cilantro. So to this day, if cilantro is, you know, enough of it presence, it actually kicks off the gag reflux. I can't handle it. It's, it's actually the juicing episode in our lives has actually damaged my enjoyment of certain Mexican food. You know what I'm saying? The admixture of these things together. There was a time where it wasn't a problem. It has become an abomination to me. So it is with the Lord. Your worship, your incense, your new moons, you said wonderful. But you, you just kept bringing in your iniquity. I can't take it anymore. All I can smell is your iniquity. Can't take your sacrifice. Can't take your incense. Can't handle it. It's disgusting. Abomination is how he lists it. Turn to my stomach is what he's saying. 
I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, literally, this number here, you guys, when they lift up their head and they spread out their hands, when you pray, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. And it's not like, oh, here it comes. It's a matter of when he sees it, the way it's written in the Hebrew language is the idea of all. I can't look at that. Man, I've only had a few things in life that I've literally seen with my own eyes that have repulsed me away like that, the way the scripture describes it. I was in high school. We were in Bangor. We turned up onto State Street. And as we turned onto State Street, there was a set of shoes in the road. And I thought, how weird is that? Just like, like somebody was walking and just left their shoes right there in the road. And they had. They were just about 50 feet down the road, having been mangled by a car. You know, and like, I don't know, that's there. And then you, oh, man. You can't, you can't ever get it out of your mind. Repulsed by it. That's what God is saying about, oh, you spread your hands and you lift your face to pray to me. I, I have to hide my eyes from it. I can't look at that. Do we take it this seriously? Does the church take it this seriously? Because I think the church plays cute with it way too much. Goes and lives in the sin and then comes right in. And, and even from the position of, oh, at least I'm here raising my hands. I'm brokenhearted over it. I'm going to go right back this afternoon and do it. But I'm here now. The brokenness, the broken heart needs to go out the door with us and stay with us all day. And stay with us all week. And come right back in. See, that's not my interpretation. What did the Lord tell us, right? A broken and contrite heart I will not despise. That's repentance. The heart that is broken over these things. I'll hide my eyes from it. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. I won't hear See, that, that flies in the face of what a lot of people in our culture teach. Oh, just come to God any way you want to. He listens to everybody. Yeah, he does. He listens to anyone and everyone who has repented. Right? If I repented back there, but then I unrepented, then the only thing he's waiting to hear is my repentance. He needs my repentance. To be constant. Not back and forth and up and down. Not backsliding and going back to the old way. He needs a continual line of repentance. That's, that's, how, that's how I get that unbroken hearing of the Lord. Where he continuously listens. Is where When I'm scared to death of my sin. When I'm scared to death of my behavior. When I'm scared to death. To move away from him and itch. Then I've got his ear all the time. I move away. I muddy that up. 
that the only thing he's waiting for is that prayer of repentance again. Oh, we're back to that conversation. Okay. He's patient. He's kind. He'll listen for it. We damage ourselves. Without the right heart, God hates their religion, ceremony, and service. Luke chapter 11, verse 42, Jesus says, But woe to the Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs. They literally would go to the market and buy their little bag of mint seasoning, come home and sit and very carefully cut that all into 10 equal piles, weigh it all out, 10, okay, 10, and then take one of those piles and give that to God. That's God's. They, they would literally take all of their spices, their rue, okay, we got to take the, every manner of herb that they would get, okay, I got salt, I got 10 piles here, oh, that one's a few grains over there, okay, and everything's divided, okay, that one's God's. Giving one-tenth of everything, carefully weighing it out. You pass by justice and the love of God. You don't treat God right or your fellow man right. Justice, right, my neighbor? I've made that guy so mad, he's completely embittered at me, and I don't care. Why? Because I'm holy. I divide my salt into ten piles. I give God one-tenth of my mint every week. That guy doesn't like me? Too bad. I neglect justice and God. I don't think about my relationship with him at all. But I go through all of these religious forms and ceremonies. So therefore, I justify myself in my own mind. Jesus says there in Luke chapter 11, verse 42, these you ought to have done. You should have tithed everything. You should have been doing that. You should have been tithing from everything that you had. Yes, that's true. But you should not have neglected the others. You shouldn't have left the others undone. It should be a whole thing for you. The relationship with God, the relationship with our fellow man, all of these things should be an outpouring of our relationship with God. Yeah. Instead, we just do all the stuff that I can tell you I do. Right? Have you noticed that I tithe from my mint? Have you noticed I always give one-tenth of my pepper? Impressive, huh? That's how they function. That's how Christians function. Do all the outward stuff. Don't ever look inside. Don't don't pry inside my closet. Don't look at my internet browsing. You know, you'd be horrified if you. You want to look at my closet or my internet browsing? Please do. It will not be shocking to you. It will not. We need to have a sincerity of heart, you guys. A sincerity of heart that keeps us where we belong. A fear of God. I think that for a lot of people, <clears throat> they say they think, you know, they believe in God, they think He's real, but I don't think they really believe that. 
I think for a lot of people, their religion is a massive game. Really isn't. They don't really think God is watching. They don't really think God holds judgment in his hands. They don't really think that the things of the scripture are going to come true. It's a massive game for a lot of people. It's a very dangerous game. Eternity is at stake. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16. Here comes the beauty, right? All of that's really heavy, and we can walk away going, wow, man, I'm horrible. Hear the Lord. Wash your hands. Make yourself clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. And then that classic verse we all know. Come. And a lot of people miss this. Now. Not later. Not after you've thought about it through Friday and Saturday and maybe show back up here Sunday. Now. Thursday night. Come now. And let us reason together. You know what? Reason it out with God. Sit down with him. Literally sit down with him and say, what about this thing in my life, Lord? You know, all that junk Will is saying, I walked away from that with a heavy heart. And I don't know. Maybe he's just being heavy handed. I got to I got to hash it out with you. Reason with God. Sit down. He wants to reason with us. It isn't a matter, you know, the, the whole world says, oh, Christianity is a mindless religion. No, God is saying, let's talk about it. Let's think about it. Ask me questions. I'll give you answers. God will speak to me? Yeah. You'll hear him in your heart and in your mind saying things to you, and you'll walk away from it going, I don't know if that was God or my own thoughts. Ask the Lord, show me. Show me if that was my own thoughts or actually you speaking to me, and he'll show you. And he's not going to be offended if you say, I'm not sure if that was me convincing myself that you were convincing me or not. And he'll prove it to you even further. This is God saying, let's reason together. He's the most reasonable being you're ever going to meet. He wants to weigh it out with you. We see historically his character with those who want to believe. He's willing to wrestle with Jacob, right? Literally, get right down on the ground and let's go. Wrestles with him all night, physically. Until he comes to that place where God's got him. But Jacob is saying, I am not letting go until you've blessed me. And the Lord says, okay, here comes your blessing. I'm going to cripple you, crush, as he touches his hip and cripples the man for life. So many of us have wrestled with God that way and experienced the crippling that way, and we've walked away at first thinking, this is such a horrible thing I'm going to have to deal with for the rest of my life. And what we realize is, I have to have this for the rest of my life so that I don't forget that wrestling. The world looks at it like a limp, and what it is, is me 
clinging to God. Yeah, I am leaning on him. Right, he has made me dependent upon him like a crutch. Yep, my faith is a crutch. Yes, it is. And now I'm gimped for the rest of my life. And that's how I'm going. I'm going through life leaning on the Lord. It needs to become that. It needs to become that we've wrestled with him. Say to the Lord, excuse me, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, double dyed is really what it means. Bathed in the crimson dye, pulled out, rinsed until as much of the dye will come out as will come out, dried to bone dry, put back in the dye, saturated again, and pulled out, dried, rinsed, and then dried. Literally, those are the steps. That's double dyed. You've done it. You say, no, I haven't. Yes, you have. You've gotten the stain in your shirt, and you didn't realize it, and you put it in the washer, and you pulled it out, and put it right in the dryer. High heat for who knows how long, and it set that stain in there permanently, didn't it? Right? You can stand there with a shout all you want. Hose that thing down and scrub and leave it forever. That stain's never coming out. Because you set it with heat. So it is. This is what you, Though your sins be like scarlet, double dyed, literally is what it means. They shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as white as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Therein is something quite unique. When I was saying it earlier of how you spread out your hands, I'll hide my face from you. I will not answer your prayers. We hinder our relationship from God. We stop ourselves from experiencing his blessing. If we will walk in this repentance and the purity, the blessings will come. You may never be prosperous. You may never be wealthy. But you will have the blessing of the Lord upon your life. You will have ease. You will have peace. You will have comfort. There won't be that constant worry and fretting that life is when you are constantly guilty. The Lord delivers us from that. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's a sealed thing. When God says something, that's the way it's going to be. You can't stop it. You can't take it away. How the faithful city has become a harlot. And I'm going to allow you to just sort of run some parallels here. This country was referred to as a city set on a hill by the founding fathers. Jesus referred to our faith as a city set on a hill. You know, a light set on a lamp stand. We were salt and light to the world. The Hebrew nation, the Jews, and Christianity run a parallel path. What is said to Israel can be said to us. How the faithful city has become a harlot, a prostitute. It was full of justice, 
righteousness lodged in it. But now murderers, your silver has become dross, worthless junk. Your wine mixed with water, polluted literally. Your princes, your rulers, are rebellious and companions of thieves. Sound like the politicians. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They don't do things because of morality. They do not defend the fatherless, even though they say they do. Nor does the cause of the widow come before them. They enslave them. Therefore, the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. Ah, I will rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away all your alloy. Notice this. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. The Lord's going to do it, not the people. I will restore. Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with or her penitence with righteousness. The destruction of transgressors and of sinners shall be together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed, for they shall be ashamed of the terebinth trees which you have desired. Those were uh, terebinth trees were trees that they had delimbed that they would then carve into sexual symbols. The place was just surrounded with all kinds of nudity and pornography and their imagery. You've desired these things. You shall be embarrassed because of the gardens, the locations that were full of these trees and statues, which you have chosen. And you shall be as the terebinth whose leaf fades and as a garden that has no water. You know, these trees that you admired, that you turned into these sexual symbols, you're going to be like a tree, all right, that's withered. The strong shall be as a tinder, ready for fire. And the work of it as a spark. Both will be burned together. No one shall quench them. And that verse 31 uh, is, it, it doesn't translate well there. It's, it's more explaining like a rope that has been put under tremendous pressure until it popped open in such a way that the end was frayed right open so that if a spark was to land on it, it would just ignite and burst into flame. That, that's what he's saying there. You know, you, a strong, the strong shall be as a tinder, the stretching until it pops open, and the work that stretching and and sort of blowing open as a spark like that's that like all of that will happen at once the popping open the fraying open the spark and ignition will happen all together you know you think about 911 and how much our culture changed in that moment 
we we are so primed right now for who knows what kind of an event next. Think about the insanity that's going on in our culture right now. You know, groups on this side and groups on that side meeting in the same location just as ready for hate-filled clash and violence as they can be both sides. Tell me we're not on the brink of civil war. Tell me we're not on the brink of some kind of cultural explosion. You know, people say civil war is not possible. Government's different. Military's different. Okay. What do I know? You're telling me that our culture isn't on the brink of that? Where the government would have to step in? and enforce martial law or who knows what, we are are primed for this. Primed for it. Why? Why? You can't point the finger anywhere else but yourself. Are you a contributor? Or are you on your face daily, broken and repentant? Because that's the only thing that's going to change everything is every single person having a broken and contrite heart, walking with the Lord continuously. It isn't going to be through some civic organization and we're going to go out. We need the Holy Spirit to fall on our country and change people's hearts. That means I need to be on my face praying with pure hands lifted toward him, that he will look upon and not, not be disgusted with, that my voice will be heard in his ear, and that he will respond and send his spirit to you guys. And as we are on our face together, and the spirit goes to the greater circle, and the greater circle, Jesus Christ is the answer for our culture. For our country. That starts with me. This is how this works. Whenever anybody's looking at a civic organization, you start the civic organization. Take your vision and go start the civic organization. You just deferred how long it's going to be before this country repents. Because that civic organization gets part of the glory. Therefore, God stands back and says, go ahead, do your best. Fix your culture. Go ahead, do it. He's waiting to heal the culture, waiting to heal the country. He does it through all of us getting on our face and repenting. Prayer. Let the Lord affect you, and he'll affect your neighbor also. Make sense? Let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, we are grateful. Thank you for the prophet Isaiah. Help us to be men and women that embrace this message, that live by your word. Work in us. Work through us. Use us. Lord, we want to be your instruments, your servants, your sons and daughters. Guide us as only you can. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Stay in fellowship as long as you want to.